This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. Good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, if you would take that and turn to Luke chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 26 through 38, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. As you're turning there, I just want to share with you some sad news. Um, Rebecca Grossclaw, a member of our church, passed away. She was just 54 years old. So we'll be praying for her husband, Tim, and their family. There will be um, a funeral on Wednesday. It'll be here at First Pres at 11 o'clock. And so if you're able to come out and support the family, we would encourage you to do that. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am your servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before you. And Lord, we are ever thankful for the salvation that the scriptures speak of. We're thankful for the one who was born in flesh, God himself, Jesus, our Savior. Thankful, Father, that you would send your own Son to save sinners such as us. We're thankful for the great love that is shown towards us in Jesus humbling himself, taking on human flesh, living a sinless life so that he might die for sinners. We're thankful for the good news of the gospel. We're thankful for the love of Christ who was willing to come and do all that was necessary so that we might be saved. The Holy Spirit, we're thankful for the conviction you bring as you show us our sin. But we're also thankful as you apply the work of Christ to our lives, empowering us and strengthening us to live through the resurrected power of our beloved Savior, Jesus. Yet, Lord, we know there are many who struggle. There are many who wrestle spiritually, physically, emotionally. Our hearts go out to Tim and his family, the loss of Rebecca. God, we pray for them during this most difficult time that you would minister to them. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us as your church to be your hands and feet, to, to speak words of encouragement and to strengthen all those who are struggling during this season because of loss. I know that there are many who this will be the first Christmas without a loved one. So, Lord, we, we pray for them. We pray that we would have soft hearts to remember that those around us that need to be encouraged and pointed to the good news of hope of the resurrection that Christ provides. Lord, we pray that as we gather here, that even in our own struggles, that we would turn our eyes and our hearts to Jesus. We pray that our that our focus would be upon the good news of the gospel and the joy that Jesus brings. We pray, Lord, as we pray each and every week, that we don't want to be the same. We want to be transformed. We want to be changed. And so we pray that you would do that in this hour. We pray, O oh Holy Spirit, that you would bring conviction and you would bring empowerment. We pray that for Pastor Ian as he comes and to preach. Fill his mouth with your words. Lord, allow him to communicate nothing more nor nothing less than what your word declares. And God, help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to receive. May we be changed, and Lord, may we be the ambassadors you've called us to be in a world that so desperately needs to be reminded of the good news of Jesus, the joy that Jesus brings. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Thank you, Aaron. Well, you've heard a little bit about Isaac Watts. What you may not know about him is that he was an English nonconformist. He refused to align himself with the Church of England, and he had many novel ideas. And one of them was, in addition to singing the Psalms of the Old Testament, the church ought to sing contemporary music written by, well, just ordinary people. And of course, Isaac Watts was one of them. When we sing at the end of our service today, In Tenderness, you may not know it, but that was written by W. Spencer Walton well over 100 years ago. And you are singing the very words that he put to pen. The music he wouldn't recognize, but the rest of it he would. So Isaac Watts, was a wonderful man of God, and he loved the Lord like you and I do. And when he wrote that familiar Christmas carol, Joy to the World, embedded in it was some great theology. We're going to use some of his words to uh, give meaning to our message this morning. It's the second Sunday of Advent, and this morning we're revisiting the story of the angel Gabriel appearing to a very frightened Mary. What would you do if an angel showed up unannounced and gave you a message like Gabriel gave to Mary? What would your response be? What would you think? Just imagine putting yourself in her, her shoes. Could it possibly be that I am indeed a favored one? That I'm going to have a son? I have a son, I'm not even married, I'm a virgin. Oh, and the angel tells me that my son is gonna come as a result of the operation of the Holy Spirit upon me. How will that happen? And I'm told that my son will be great and that I'm going to give him the name Jesus, Yeshua. 
Same as Joshua in the Old Testament. The word, the word means savior. What kind of savior is he gonna be? And how can I believe all of this anyway? I can hardly imagine that she would be able to absorb all of the things that Gabriel had to say to her on that occasion. But if she took the time, and I suspect she did, to reflect back on the Old Testament, she was familiar with passages in Isaiah 7 and 9 and 11 that talked about the birth of Messiah. If she were to think a little bit about what Isaiah had to say and what the angel Gabriel had just said, if she connected the dots, she would probably come to the conclusion, could it actually be that I am going to be the instrument through whom God's eternal plan of the ages is going to be fulfilled? And it must have just astounded her. At the core of this encounter that Gabriel has with Mary is the message of the gospel itself, and you and I are all familiar with it. It's not difficult to remind ourselves of that message. After all, it's Christmas season. God, in his great love and mercy, sent his only son to this planet, into this world, born of a virgin, to be our savior. And when we receive his grace personally, when we individually claim those promises as our own, we receive the greatest gift that was ever given. And we, as we have already said many times this morning, that the greatest joy is to know that Savior. And we trust that you do yourselves today. But why was this even necessary? Why a Savior? Well, Isaac Watts, in his famous hymn, declares this in the third stanza, when he says, no more let sins and sorrows grow. He reminds us all that we have been infested with a universal disease. You and I were born sinners. And the whole world is under a curse. When Adam sinned in the garden long ago, when he fell, we all fell with him. And it was the curse of God upon the whole human race that put us in the predicament that we are in, in great need of forgiveness and a savior. Even nature itself has been infected by this curse. And if you will reread Isaac Watts's Carol, you will see references to the physical world and nature, the, the rocks crying out, the trees mourning, nature itself longing for the return of the Savior. That's the good news, the gospel. When Jesus Christ came to this planet and they put him on a cross and they put him in the tomb and three days later he rose again and ultimately he ascended on high, the curse was canceled. Watts says in the second, in, in, in the stanza of his 
him far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. He comes to make his blessings flow. Our God is a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness and kindness. And one by one, as we humble our hearts and come before him, he gives us the promise of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel in a nutshell. But the angel Gabriel had more to say to Mary. Not just a personal savior, but a king for Israel. Not only would, would this child be great, and not only would this child be the son of the Most High, which he is, but the Lord God would give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, so said Gabriel. What an astounding statement. A kingdom over which he reigns as the king. Well, Mary had to think long and hard about those words. She knew that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob always keeps his promises to his covenant people. She knew that the Messiah would occupy David's throne. The Old Testament says that. And eventually, and we'll discover this in a couple weeks, when we look at Mary's own song of response, she will confess these very things herself. But Gabriel adds something more to what she already knows that she may not have grasped. That this kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom and it extends beyond the borders of Israel. Mary will marvel not long afterward, after her baby is born, and Mary and Joseph take him to be circumcised. They will stumble across a man named Simeon who has been waiting his whole life for his eyes to look upon God's redemption, and he will take the child in his arms and say, I want to bless this child. This child will be a light for the Gentiles, and that when Messiah begins to teach, indeed, he includes the Gentiles in his preaching. I'm sure Mary must have thought, well, I know he's our king, but now I understand from Simeon that he'll be a light for the Gentiles as well. When Jesus began to preach and teach, you know, obviously he focused on the children of Israel, but every once in a while he would talk about the Gentiles. He would heal a Syrophoenician woman. He would talk about the Samaritans, those foreigners. And he would include them and embrace them in the message and in his healing encounters. And we know that when he eventually met with his disciples and sent them out and instructed them, and especially when he finally gathered them just before he left this planet, he said to them, now here's your assignment. I want you to go and proclaim the good news. But don't just do it locally. Don't just do it among our own people. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And you and I 
living where we live in the 21st century, long after that commission was given, are the direct recipients of that good news. He's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of all the nations. He's the king of the universe, and he is our king individually. And that's just what Isaac Watts says in his carol. It's not just joy to me, as important as that is and as wonderful as that is, it's joy to the world. The first stanza says, let earth receive her king. Yes, the king is intended for the whole earth. But has this old, old earth actually received him? John tells us he came unto his own, to his own domain, to this planet, and his own received him not. The next stanza says, the Savior reigns. Really? In my Sunday school class, going through the book of Revelation, we have been looking for many, many weeks at some of the promises given in that wonderful book from the Apostle John. And we've asked the question over and over, to what extent is Christ really reigning? To what extent does he really have this old world under his control? To what extent can we truly say he is king of kings and lord of lords? After all, Apostle Paul reminds us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He sure looks like he's in control. How can we affirm the fact that Christ is in control? Well, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 4, a couple of passages that tells us he removes kings and he raises them up. Nothing happens in this old world that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords doesn't know about. And a lot of things go on around here by God's permission, not by what he desires to see happen. The fourth stanza in Watts' hymn, he rules the world with truth and grace. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. Oh, really? Not the world I'm familiar with. I'm indebted to a well-known preacher that many of you know, John Piper, who makes some comments on, on the reign of Christ. So I'm borrowing a little bit from him. And it simply affirms what I've already believed and have long believed that, well, number one, God is in control. Jesus Christ does reign. He always has. Nothing has happened in all through history without God's sovereign protection. That has never changed. But something dramatically dramatic happened when Christ died on the cross and rose again and when he ascended on high. Book of Ephesians tells us he was seated at the right hand of God. And there he has dominion over all authority, all power, all 
wisdom and strength and so-called influence in this world that he is sitting in heaven, reigning from heaven. And his most remarkable work is an invisible work. He's building his own kingdom. He's reaching into the hearts of men and women and touching them with the good news, causing them to respond in faith. And one by one, by one, people are entering into the kingdom of God. They're confessing Christ as Savior. And it's, and it's working and developing toward a final, ultimate expression. And Piper goes on to say that it's not over yet that there's coming a day when Christ will return and claim the kingdom that he has been building. In our study in Revelation, we've obviously looked at many, many different opinions and different views, but all evangelical teachers and pastors and preachers affirm that chapter 19 is a description of the literal return of Christ to this planet. And when he comes, he judges the nations. He rules them with an iron rod. He takes ultimate control. The ultimate final expression of the kingdom of God and the reign of Christ is awaiting that time when he comes again and he takes his rightful position. Oh, of course, he's always been reigning. And something changed when he ascended on high and sat down at the right hand of God, but something altogether different will happen when we see the Savior face to face. No way in the world Mary could have absorbed all of that. She was just concerned with her own little life, the role that she was going to be playing as the conduit of God's message. But as she grew, as she listened, and I'm sure as she listened to her own son preach the good news and talking about the kingdom of God, she knew, oh, what a blessed woman I am. Someday, Revelation 21 says, there will be new heavens and a new earth. Sometimes we get the idea, oh, that's going to be completely different. That's something going to be totally invisible, totally unlike what we have known. But embedded in that chapter is that wonderful line, the nations will walk by the light of God's glory. They don't now, but they will then, and there will still be nations. After all, people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people will gather around the throne. And the final, ultimate expression of Christ's reign, his kingship, his kingdom, will be when we see him face to face. Meanwhile, we wait. And it's a wonderful thing to know that we are aligned with that king. Let me remind you of the opening stanza of Isaac Watts's hymn. Let every heart prepare him room. Now we're Presbyterians, so let's make sure we understand this. God is the one that 
prepares your heart. He's the one that cultivates the ground. He's the one that makes you and me alert to and sensitive to and even able to respond to the good news. But that doesn't change the fact that it's still your job and my job to make sure that our hearts are ready and prepared. And when Isaac Watts says, let every heart prepare him room, that means individually you have to decide, am I going to be a child of the king? Am I going to align myself with this message? Can I honestly say he's my savior? He died for my sins. He rose again to pay the penalty that I deserved. And he rose on high and now he is my king. He, he is the king of my life. He is my Lord. And I'm waiting his return when we gather around the Lord's table later on in our service. We examine our own hearts individually. Nobody can do it for you. It doesn't matter what your upbringing was, what your family relationship is. It doesn't matter, nothing matters except your personal relationship. That's why when we take these elements and we, we ingest them, even that is a visual reminder. This is for me. He died for me. I affirm these things. I accept and embrace these promises. And so let every heart prepare him room. We trust you've done that today. If not, well, here's the story. And we're going to remember that story when we gather around the Lord's table. As Pastor Carr leads us, when Jesus met with his disciples, this is my body, this is my blood spilled for you. And you and I can revel once again in his wonderful love and grace. Meanwhile, we wait for his return. He reigns as our savior. He reigns as our redeemer. And he is our soon coming king. Let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you that we can have a relationship with a great God, a God who loves us and has embraced us with good news. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son, Jesus, to be our Savior and our Redeemer. But thank you as well that he is the king of this whole universe. One day, we will all gather around the throne. and We will point to the one who is king of kings. And he will rule and reign in a way that he has never done yet on this planet. And in the new heavens and the new earth, we will enjoy that kingdom forever and ever. And he will make all things right. Meanwhile, Lord, help us to acknowledge our Lord's kingship each day. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.